This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, Arterist CEO John Exerio Chilius joins us to talk about AI, healthcare, and medical imaging, and the advantages of a cloud-native approach. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. NetApp. I love this company. Zipork. Zipork. I love NetApp because it's so funny. Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm here in the basement of my house and with me today I have Esteban Rubens. Uh, So Esteban, what do you do here at NetApp and how do we reach you? Hey, thanks, Justin. I'm the principal for AI in the healthcare team. My email address is esteban.rubens at netapp.com. All right, excellent. Also with us here today, we have a special guest from a company called Arteris. Uh, we have John Axario Chilius. Did I say that right? Yes, yes, I did it. I promise I didn't practice that beforehand. Uh, so, John, uh, who are you and what do you do at, at, at uh, Arteris? Sure. Um, so, I am CEO and, and co-founder. And um, I, um, I kind of lead uh, a lot of the operations, commercial and technical aspects here at Arteris. All right, excellent. So you're you're the actual CEO, like the the big boss. <laughs> yeah. Are you also I, the founder of Arteris? Uh, I am. Yes. Um, so I yeah wear both hats, and it's a uh, it's a unique position to have. And I honestly, uh, it's uh, it's a lot of responsibility. And I kind of like being. I actually wear the CTO hat as well. But um, you know, I'm I'm much more of a technical kind of um, person rather than more of a commercial person. So so what is a founder do that a CEO doesn't do and vice versa? I mean, are the roles significantly different or is one carrying the torch for the company, you know, as far as like, you know, evangelism, what are the differences there? Yeah. Um, that's a good question and changes based on the company culture. Um, you know, ultimately the founder is going to be to your point, kind of an evangelist, always kind of, um, kind of trying to keep a, a, a strong kind of brand and, and trying to ensure that's, there's like a long-term success and, um, you know, and ultimately the CEO is doing the same thing, but it's kind of much more, I would say operational, much more kind of in investor relations, um, kind of board relations and ensuring quarter by quarter the meeting milestones. And um, so it's, it's um, you know, these two roles can overlap, but uh, it's also nice to have um, non-overlapping roles as well. So I, I've kind of seen both. And as CTO, I would imagine you have to make, technology decisions for the company as a whole, like, you know, as far as what sort of things you'll use in your IT organization, as well as what you'll deploy on, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. So uh, ultimately, uh, it has to be tied to kind of the business case. And I think that's why if you're CTO or somebody is in that role, it's important to really understand the business um, and kind of what's the business model and tied fundamentally back to that. So you can understand what the cost of Good sold ours and make right decisions for the for the architecture. So um, I, I've seen success in in other companies with CTO roles where they understand a lot of the commercial and technical aspects well. And that'll be good to you know for us to understand as we start to dive into what Arteris does because you're talking to people that have to make these same decisions as you're making. Uh, yes, uh, that's a that's a great point. I mean, ultimately. We, uh, we, we sell into um, health systems and hospitals and um, radiology departments. And 
there's what I call the nine deep sale. There, you have to convince nine people in order to, to, to make a sale. And ultimately, the, the CIO is, is, is a big part of that. Um, and, and also, obviously, the, a big part of that are the clinical champions. And of course, there's seven other roles that are, but the CIO and the head clinical person definitely are, are, are big decision makers. So tell me a little bit more about Arteris. What is that company and what does it do? Sure. So um, maybe I can touch a little bit on on how we got started. But ultimately right now, you know, Arteris is a, a vendor neutral AI platform for, for medical imaging. So we, we essentially have clinical applications that are powered by AI that help uh, end users, doctors, physicians, radiologists, with, the, with their day-to-day in terms of uh, workflow, in terms of uh, uh, making them more efficient, but also ultimately improving the quality of care. Because uh, with uh, the applications that we do have across many different areas of the body, we can ultimately um, help them uh, I, you know, f- flag certain pathology um, that would potentially be missed or help them in tasks that are, that are tedious or help them in tasks that... Um, that um, that you know the human eyes just can't do alone, and, um, and I'd love to get into examples of that. But one one example is, for example, if you're trying to quantify the size of a of a of a lung nodule, you know, if it's a 3D complex shape, that takes time. That's a perfect use case for AI to automate, as opposed to somebody trying to do it manually. So again, it's about improving quality of care and ultimately making it more efficient for, for the end users. You, you guys were one of the early ones to get FDA clearance and integrate into existing workflows like PACS. So that's the, the really interesting part of this, because if you think about AI as augmenting the intelligence of radiologists or you know other, other physicians, what do you guys do goes to the heart of this because of the usability aspect. It's not just some cool tool that works in a vacuum, but then how do you integrate into the real life of, you know, the everyday existence of the physicians? So maybe, can you talk about that a little bit and how did it come about? Did you always know that you were going to do that or would it, was it a requirement as you started talking to healthcare customers? Yeah. So the, that's the hardest part about, uh, about AI in general or providing these applications that are subspecialty focused or, that have that go beyond just a PAX. And for those of you who are not familiar with what a PAX does is that's kind of the standard name that's that's given out there to be able to view and store and uh, kind of read cases. And that's what a radiologist typically uses every day. But uh, there's other referring physicians that also use a PAX to be able to view images. But at its core, it's basically that, just viewing. You know, but what, what we're doing is, and we're, is providing that extra layer of intelligence on top of that to, um, for, for certain subspecialties, for example, in the cardiac space, in the, in the, in the neuro space, in the MSK or, or, or chest space, uh, and, and growing. Um, so, so for us, we, um, uh, the, the most, the biggest challenge is that integration into the clinical workflow, because I see so many companies creating these great tools, but if it requires one extra click, it's not going to be used. And y- you may laugh, oh, come on, what's one extra click? But the reality is it is huge. And especially for radiologists, if we're targeting, you know, ED physicians or cardiologists, maybe they're okay with two clicks. But if it requires that anybody waiting an extra 30 seconds for some AI results, 
they're not going to want it. Uh, they have to move fast and, and they want the answers at their fingertips. And so when I talk about success in AI, it's not about sensitivity specificity of some model, whether it's 90%, 92%, that is like, that is really only like a, a small subset of the problem. The biggest problem is how do you integrate it? How do you get it in there in a seamless way into the cockpit of that user? And every user is, has a different cockpit. That's the first issue in medical imaging. If you're targeting pathologists versus a radiologist versus a cardiologist, it's a very different type of cockpit. Um, and, and by cockpit, it's like, what, how are they actually um, you know, working with AI or how are they uh, ingesting this information? Um, there's, there's, there's great quotes from, from, from folks in the AI industry saying, the best way to integrate AI is when people don't even know that it's there. And, 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 but that's really hard to do in practice. So especially if you're trying to integrate with these legacy systems like PACs that were never built for that. So um, you know what AI companies are doing is leveraging existing APIs or existing DICOM, if that's the standard for images, um, but that's really limited in terms of what you can do. So the whole industry has been moving toward uh, interoperability and making it easier to, in, to integrate AI, but it's still, we're at kind of the very early phases uh, of this. And it's going to take, you know, decades before there's a common language uh, and understanding it in terms of how all these results are going to pass from one system to the other. So how have we succeeded in this space? You know, for us, uh, we've, we've had to build out um, like core components of kind of this, 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 uh, this cockpit in terms of being able to grab the images right off the scanners as quickly as possible, be, being able to process them as efficiently as possible. And for us, um, we realized early on with these large studies, which can be on orders of gigabytes per study, so per exam, you know, that could never be, be done locally because hospitals weren't in a position to buy GPUs uh, or, or to buy huge clusters. And in fact, what we're seeing in the industry is hospitals are starting to move away from that and starting to become more comfortable with, uh, for example, the cloud and, and becoming more comfortable with accepting the fact that that investment they made four years ago on their data center is slowly gonna be phased out. And, and if you ask CIOs, if you ask the hospitals, there's a general trend toward that it, as long as the, the price and the, uh, you know, stay, stays low. So for us, we figured out a way to grab the data, send it to the cloud to be processed as much faster than trying to do that on-prem and then being able to integrate that results into existing systems like the electronic um, health record or the or the electronic medical record, the the, um, the dictation system. So there's clear APIs in terms of um, sending that right into the, the the patient's report, sending it back into PACs if needed, or sending it to whatever other systems are out there. Um, and again, it's about understanding that workflow. That is the hardest part, and it's not it's and it, it's about understanding that user because sometimes it's not even the radiologist. I'll give you another example. If you're targeting the ED physicians or for stroke, um, you know, if you're targeting uh, neurologists or, or frontline um, kind of um, nurses and workers to alert or triage, maybe the output of your whole system is a single text message or a single push notification. So like it's about understanding what that use case is and how long it, it uh, each, um, what's acceptable from a, from a turnaround time. Like that's the hardest part. And then we talk about AI. So I would imagine that companies come to you because they're being either told or instructed or they're curious about going to 
move these things to the cloud, especially for situations where they have remote offices that may not have access to a giant data center. Um, what are you telling them in terms of you know how to alleviate their concerns about the cloud, and what are the challenges that they're bringing to you in their environments? Sure. So I'll give you a story of when uh, so when we started Autoris, um, you know, almost a decade ago, we we decided that we we're going to go full cloud native to start. And there were very few imaging companies that took that stance. There were a few in kind of the healthcare and the sector, um, but we decided we're going to go all in, multi-tenant, uh, cloud native. And when we went into our first security review, I think it was in 2012 or 2013, we essentially got laughed out of the room by the people in there. By, and I won't mention the name, but it was a large academic medical center. And they told me, you guys are crazy. And if you think we're going to send a single patient out of our firewall, I remember that meeting to today. Flash, flash forward to two years ago, and the that same uh, you know health system is uh, and their CIO made a statement to say if an application is not cloud ready, we will not consider purchasing it. So uh, just to give you an idea of how things have shifted, let's say over the past uh, five years. Now just fast forward over the past two years, there's been a rapid acceleration of. Hey, we're all on a Zoom. Hey, we're all already sending PHI out of the hospital. Claims data, you know, insurance information. All of that is already leaving, and the standards with some of those companies are, are, are quite low. They've been breached, and and, and there's and there's great um, you know there's examples of of that out there. But um, ultimately, it's about showing um, these these systems that the right controls are in, in place to show that it is safe to send PHI outside of their firewall. And ultimately, I've shown in presentations that in some cases, it's actually safer to store the data, for example, in the cloud, rather than having it sitting unencrypted on-prem. And um, I, I'll give an example. Anybody could walk into any hospital, splice an Ethernet cable, and just, just get all the PHI they wanted to. Um, it's especially some of these HL7, DICOM, or just un unencrypted um, communication. So ultimately, uh, we can show that it's actually safer as long as you have the right standards in place. So um, ISO certification, SOC 1, SOC 2, high trust, these sorts of things help alleviate um, some of this uh, worries that's, that security teams have. Um, but it's, it's gone a lot easier, and especially there's been a lot more companies that have done it well. So that opens precedence. Um, and now there hasn't been one single conversation over the past 100 that I've had where they say it's it's a non-starter, it's always uh, still challenging, but it's uh, but it's possible. What about the scaling aspect? <clears throat> As you go from a startup to you know your minimum viable product to some kind of prototype, obviously the cloud makes perfect sense for that. But what about scaling now? As you have paying customers, and you know you deal with some large IDNs and, and health systems, how has that been, and and how do you? To react to that and any challenges that you've seen? Yeah, um, for sure. We've learned our lessons along the way in terms of um, identifying where the bottlenecks are in the system. Because when, when we were small, we just had a certain architecture. We assumed that uh, it, it would scale well. We could spin up an extra load balancer and, and then everything will be kind of running smoothly. The reality is you don't know uh, what you don't know, and, and and at the time we didn't have the bandwidth to 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 run you know specific types of of uh, stress testing, right? 
Um, but you know, fast forward, and since we've been in this now for for seven plus years, we, we now have that infrastructure in place. Um, and where, for example, like Netflix has also famously done this with uh, with certain tools they've developed, where you purposely crash servers to 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 ensure that the system is 100% running. And when that server doesn't respond, it hot swaps to some other server, and the and the user has no clue that even happened. So um, examples like that is where we've had to build it out and, and, and it's taken time and money and um, it, it wasn't easy. It's not like, oh, we're, we're on AWS and like we just use their APIs, their services and it's everything is you know, simple. It's like we, we learned along the way that it's it's not and you have to constantly evaluate where those bottlenecks are. And so now we've gotten to a point where it's really easy for us to scale up and down. So we essentially scale up and down based on each time zone because we know uh, at each site what their volume is going to be. Um, if, if, and it depends on the, on application. So we, we're customizing when certain servers are up, are, are up and what kind of processing is required. And ultimately it benefits us because that ultimately re- reduces the cost for the end user, because with a purely cloud native uh, solution, you can offer like the, the cost to provide that solution is ultimately lower when you have scale, uh, versus trying to do colos or, or trying to deploy on-prem, you, you have to over budget for in terms of what your peak loads are versus we can essentially amortize that across all of our users in, 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 in a single cluster. So, um, so that's been great for us. And, and, it's, and, it's, and our margins can, can, can stay high because we, because we have that flexibility in the platform. So um, I, I, that's, I'm really happy we took that, that decision back in 2012 to, to go full cloud native. Um, and, and that's where the future is going. So what sort of challenges do you see with data movement? Like I would imagine a lot of these customers that come to you already have on-prem solutions and they need to get that data from point A to point B. How are you helping them get to your, your product? Sure. So, uh, so the first thing is uh, that we actually have a little piece of edge uh, software that actually de-identifies data and that helps in the security discussion. So uh, we actually keep most PHI on-prem. Now we have some sites that are comfortable sending PHI out but we essentially strip out the PHI, send the pixels to the cloud, and then uh, through a browser session, they can uh, visualize, um, you know, a, a, um, a patient's name with with their images, and it's all happening seamlessly behind the scenes. That kind of um, unification of that data. Um, so we've we've been able to we we we've had to develop that solution because when when we've been selling between 2013 and 2018, that was almost a requirement. Now. Few folks are more comfortable with sending PHI out to the cloud, but that's one step um, through our edge software. Now that edge software essentially acts as a DICOM router, as well as a way to send information back into existing systems. So it's kind of a gateway, you think of it, and that helps kind of in the movement of data. Um, you know, over time, I think uh, the, the, there is gonna be more efficient uh, ways to transport and move data around. Unfortunately, in imaging, it's still very dependent on DICOM, which is an old standard. And it's, uh, but there's new standards coming out like DICOM web, which makes movement of data a lot faster. And we're big proponents of that. So like our whole backend system is based on DICOM web. And the, the, but the reality is packs aren't there yet. And, um, and you have packs that have been running for 10, 10 plus years with 30 year old architectures. It's gonna take many, many years before DICOM web or, or more advanced kind of RESTful APIs are out there to send this data around efficiently. So we, we've kind of had to adapt uh, based on what's out there and then um, and then also make it as simple as possible to get the data out 
and as simple as possible to get the data into existing systems because it's a huge bottleneck still the IT resources on and the IT expertise um, on, on staff. And once the data is in the cloud, are you managing where it lives in those cloud resources? For example, you know you don't want to stand up a large uh, AWS instance with you know massive processing power and then just leave data sitting there for for years, right? Without doing anything with it. Are, are you moving that to something like Glacier? And if you are, how are you accomplishing that? Yeah, so um, we use uh, we use S3 as our um, primary storage. So basically, from the scanners, from the hospitals, the data just funnels straight in kind of, uh, along multiple threads, uh, and multiple and you can have multiple connections up into uh, up into S3, and then that kind of access our like like nine nines or eleven nines, whatever it is now of uh, of durability, and then um, from there we kind of optimized. For processing, how we grab the data from there and make it super efficient to um, to, to run AI or to run rendering or, or whatever that is, and we have the instances kind of the, uh, in AWS that have like very fast pipes between S3 and the instances, so um, we, we're able to manage that. Uh, of course, the big issue over time is the cost of storage. <clears throat> so we do as much as we can to, to limit how long we keep the data for. And ultimately, if we are keeping data for years, the customer ends up paying for that. But that still is a little bit of a bottleneck in terms of cost. Um, you know, right now it's about 2.3 cents per gigabyte per month, um, and that's still a little bit high, especially for more, um, you know, for more uh, larger studies. For example, like digital pathology; those are like massive uh, studies, and the, the, um, the economics aren't quite there yet to, to transfer all of those, that case to the cloud. It's worth getting there. Uh, but for radiology, uh, absolutely. I think it makes a lot of sense uh, to, to move all that, that data up and to keep it in a, in a, in a central storage um, location because imaging is moving to a much more of a connected um, uh, environment where you have multiple readers from multiple different institutions and you have external reading groups reading for certain hospitals. So the data should be flowing easily back and forth between these systems without using VPNs. Um, and, and, and that's kind of what we've been able to build is this kind of this, this remote network so anybody in the world can be reading cases without any slowdowns and be able to, to process these with AI. Are you the keeper of record for most of these or is it ultimately the PAX or VNA on the customer side yeah, um, great question. Right now, it's the latter. Um, like we're not, we're, we're typically not the primary um, right. storage, you know. But over time, when people become more comfortable with cloud, and uh, that that can end up shifting. But for now, it's primarily dominated by PACs and VNAs. So when you do keep, so you mentioned some customers want to keep their data with you. It's basically the, the inference results that they can access over and over if those don't end up in their, you know, PAX or VNA or, or even EHR, they want to be able to refer to those. And so they you you keep that data for customers so that it's available. And then eventually they decide whether they want that or they want to ingest or it goes away, right? Yeah, exactly. Correct. That makes sense. So maybe... Um, so back to the, the whole cloud native discussion, which I find fascinating. Um, how did you get over the hurdle of dealing with these legacy systems? You know, I come from the world of medical imaging. And so 
painfully aware of, of what these architectures look like. You know, they were great in the late 90s, early 2000s, but they haven't really quite kept up. Kept up. So for instance, like a basic thing, S3, right? So is your edge software doing that? Because the vast majority of enterprise imaging software doesn't speak S3, right? No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's been the, uh, honestly, the, the biggest challenge for us in, in terms of adoption is how fast the images can move from the modalities or the scanners to um, and have and to processing and have the results uh, available as quickly as possible, because that's um, you know for triage situations or acute conditions or in the, in the emergency departments, you know people expect the results back in seconds or, or right. you know thirty seconds, and if it's getting over a minute, it's like hey, what's going on here? Um, so. If it's more like, for example, in, in cardiovascular imaging or um, is for non-stroke and neuro, or if you're talking about, you know, cancer, if it shows up five, 10 minutes later, so maybe it's not a big deal from a workflow perspective. But ultimately, we're building a platform to support all of these use cases. So we need to have results back in seconds in certain cases, like, for example, chest x-rays in the emergency department. So for us, we are limited by what the scanners can, can do. And unfortunately, the scanners can only do DICOM. So we're, we're limited by DICOM, and that's a very inefficient technique to transfer data. So, um, you know, when there's some more advanced things you could do, like multi-part or multi-frame DICOM uh, for larger exams or, or, or studies that have many different images in them, or, and there's compression and, and, and so on. But ultimately, that's still a huge bottleneck. But that's not the biggest bottleneck. The biggest bottleneck is the upload bandwidth of uh, what is that uh, what is that up pipe look like? And in most cases, like the, the, the bandwidth is there, but it's about having the conversation with the networking folks, IT folks to provide you 50 megabit up pipes uh, at a, um, and, and, and having that conversation. But sometimes it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it takes a while just to find that person and to request that and then the, and the rationale as to why. But um, you know, over time, as, as things get replaced with fiber, I think that's going to be going away, even with 5G. In certain cases, you can send it up faster with 5G than it, and you can yeah. with some of these, some of these copper lines. So, um, so I think that's going to be slowly moving away. And, it's, and upload that bandwidth has gone substantially um, better uh, over the past five years because we've been monitoring it. So basically, we don't do anything, but we're noticing from all our customers, it's getting better and better over time, which has been reducing the amount of time it takes to, to get the results in. So that's the biggest thing of trying to get the data out and processed and then getting data back in, that's same sort of thing using legacy APIs like HL7 or, um, you know, DICOM or proprietary, um, you know, uh, protocols like uh, SOAP or whatever it is in some cases, like that's unfortunately what we have to, what we have to spend our time doing is trying to push these, this stuff to existing systems. So it's, it's not a magic bullet, uh, Esteban, I wish it was, it's, it's grueling effort and time to like make things work with these systems. So as far as the regulatory things go, like, you know, I know that HIPAA is a concern here in the States and then you have GDPR in Europe. What are you doing in terms of how Ardorus approaches these things? Are you incorporating workflows into those regulations or how are you designing around that? Yeah. So what's nice about um, HIPAA, GDPR, um, uh, at least from a data and from a security, security perspective, it's we don't have to do anything differently. Like those are flexible, um, you know, policies uh, that 
you shouldn't really be, be, be doing anything differently. And, and so even before HIPAA or before GDPR, we, we were doing the right thing when it comes to how we should be storing data, how we should be encrypting data. So it's from that perspective, it hasn't changed much for us. Um, in terms of, uh, we, we are a medical device. So we, we not only have those regulations, but we also are, are regulated from a medical device to FDA perspective. And, uh, and we have, uh, you know, for example, uh, a quality management system um, that is, is a requirement um, for, for us as well, also to have CE marking in Europe. So we, we kind of have many different types of regulations that we've had to um, uh, achieve for, throughout the years. And, and for us, um, I think the biggest thing is, uh, the, or the mo- kind of the most recent thing is kind of uh, GDPR and ensuring that uh, data stays within each territory that you have the, the auditing in there, um, that you have the ability to, to, to delete patients uh, or to remove them from, from your memory. Um, those sort of things that maybe we, we didn't have, but we, we slowly added them to, to, to comply. And, um, and, and ultimately it's, it's about having those certifications in place. I mentioned SOC 1, SOC 2, which we're actively working on that, um, that kind of helps, helps move us and, and um, into the direction of, of cloud being safe, of, of the data being safe and so on. I was wondering if we can go through the life cycle of some image data, you know, just with the, the image at the heart, as it goes from, and even maybe give an example from something that's more time sensitive, you know, like stroke, you know, something that you guys do, mm-hmm. where you go from acquisition to the uploading to the inference and maybe add a little bit about, obviously you guys have data scientists and you're training your own models and then you're performing inference based on those models and the results back. And because I think uh, some of the people listening may not have the, the full picture of not only the complexity of the steps, but also the incredible results that you can deliver. Sure, yeah, I'd be happy to. And I'll give you an example of what we're doing in the cardiac space. So in a, in a traditional workflow, you have the patient that goes into an MRI scanner to get a scan of their chest. And that exam typically takes 20 minutes to 40 minutes on average. And uh, at the end of that exam, the images are typically sent to PACS. Um, and what happens in our case is the images are sent to both locations, to PACS and to our edge service. So, so sorry to interrupt, but it, it's a, a dual send from yep. the modality yep. that gets pushed to PACS and to, okay. Correct. And in some cases, there's a DICOM router in there that uh, the, the, the scanner sends the DICOM router and the DICOM router dual sends. Um, so it depends on the architecture a bit, but ultimately we, we get it at our edge, compress it, uh, you know, in, uh, and then send it up as fast as possible up into our cloud or, or, or our load balancer, then it sends it to our processing engine, sends the data to S3, and then we send it through a process to figure out what the heck the data is, because we have over 40 different algorithms or AI models, and we're not running every single AI model on every image because you're just gonna waste processing in uh, time. For example, if your AI models detect stroke in, in patients, um, you shouldn't be running that on an X-ray of, of their hand, right? So the, we basically have an, an orchestrator that figures out what the heck that is and figure out what AI models to run and what pre-processing to run. And, it, and then it does that as quickly as possible. And then when the, when the results are complete or the inference is complete, then it uh, our study list is populated. And then at that point, anybody in the world can log into Arteris and click on that patient in the study list and view the results immediately. And uh, the, the result is interactive. We have our own viewer, so they can rotate. If it's a 3D image, they, they can rotate, they can visualize 
blood flow. In the case of the cardiac exam, they can quantify you know, all uh, necessary elements in, in, a, in a cardiac exam. And then from there, with a single click, uh, the user can send that finalized report back into their legacy system. So their EHR, their dictation, or as a secondary capture in PACS. And, and behind the scenes, there's a lot going on because it's, it's a de-identified report that gets that then gets sent to the edge service that gets re-identified and then pushed to dictation. So there's a lot going on behind the scenes, but from a user perspective, it takes a second to click and it shows up in their dictation or less. Uh, so it's all real time and the rendering is real time. Um, and that's critically important to adoption is like zero clicks or zero additional clicks um, and, and, and fast processing. Uh, and that's so the example I gave you is in cardiac, but I have examples where for, um, you know, in the case of tracking lung nodules, we can also launch in context from the packs or whatever work list they have on site. So what, if the radiologist is using a product to figure out what patients they're going to read next, when they click in that work list, it launches in context on that patient within the artist viewer. And so they can visualize the nodules and track those over time. So that's a couple of examples of what happens behind the scenes. All right. So I'm, I'm going to ask great. a really dumb question here. So we've said DICOM a few times, and then you said DICOM router, and I keep thinking of the radish DICON. So, so what is DICOM? What is that? <laughs> sure. Uh, not a dumb question at all. It's, it's called, um, like, the, the actual acronym for it is... Uh, Digital Imaging and Communications in Medicine. It's a standard that has been around since the maybe late 80s, early 90s, something like that, that dictates how basically modalities like scanners, CTs, MRs, whatever, send data to other systems because it really was a mess before. It was like the early days of you know Ethernet where people were doing proprietary things and nothing worked together. So you would buy a G scanner and that wouldn't work with some things and then a Philips or Siemens or whatever. Like they each did things differently. So it's terrible for everyone. So then somebody, some people got together and said, hey, we need a standard. And it was awesome when it came but yeah, it's getting a little long in the tooth. Okay, so it's not the light and effervescent topping for your burgers and salads. Gotcha. <laughs> no, I love Daikon. Daikon is way better than Daikon. You know, more <laughs> more refreshing and less filling. Okay, cool. So that, we got that out of the way. We probably should have covered that earlier, but that's okay. I was, I was it's been nagging at me. I've been like, no, that's not the radish. Not the radish. <laughs> All right, uh, back on topic here. I, I tend to to derail us sometimes. Um, so you know, as as far as what you're seeing in the industry, I would imagine that business has picked up in the past year, you know, due to COVID. And that's because we're, we're, you know, quickly trying to understand COVID and understand, you know, how it works and how to treat it. Is that an accurate assessment? Are you seeing more overall over the past year because of that? Yeah. Um, I would say it's a little bit net neutral. Um, and, uh, you could say, say in, in certain geographies, it's, it's picked up a tiny bit, but, What's happening is that overall outpatient imaging um, has gone down, um, and and that means that if there's fewer exams out there, and there's and that means less revenue for, for hospitals. Uh, so so you kind of have that side of things, but you also have the side of things where hospitals are recognize the importance of these digital solutions to be able to connect remotely, to be able to work from home, um, and and recoup the benefits of of cloud solutions. So. That that's these two counter of, of forces kind of balance each other out. I think what's going to happen is as more patients now start to go back for their yearly uh, screening exams or follow up exams, 
no, absolutely. Uh, imaging volumes will continue to continue to go up. Um, so that's that's my perception of it so far. What about your development? Uh, thinking about DevOps, obviously you are cloud native, but clearly you have developers, you have data scientists, you have a bunch of people doing your your backend. So a couple of questions. Can you describe that a little bit as it pertains to how you use cloud resources? And then do you retrain? Is, is this a continuous process? Do you have some kind of agreements with some customers that uh, say, yeah, you can use some of this data for you know continuous training of your models? Sure. So um, to answer your first question on the DevOps side, um, you know our, our our DevOps team is um, is really focused around one ensuring that the that the service is, is up to 24/7, 365. Uh, you know, making things extremely reliable, adding in infrastructure that purposely takes down servers, uh, that that um, you know stress testing to ensure that um, you know that it, the systems are secure. So like all the traditional types of DevOps activities. But also from a, a deployment perspective, um, I think since all of our developers um, are constantly testing new, new functionality, we want to make it easier for them to just spin up that, in, that environment to test it um, with even users and, and also share, um, share data between all these different environments. So we're, we're essentially always trying to improve from a data management layer that's kind of separated out a bit from what the what a specific cluster is doing for from a functionality perspective. So that's kind of how we spend our days there on the DevOps side, and, and ultimately want to make it as simple for the developer to create great product and to uh, not be slowed down by build times or slowed down by um, you know processes or, or or deployment or things like that. Um, in terms of your second question around how we collect data from kind of routine use and operations. We're, we're unique in that uh, since we, we do have a viewer component, um, we're constant, we can collect you know, the information as to what uh, folks are clicking on and accepting or rejecting or uh, any, any quantification that's done on those patients. Uh, all of that is, is, is stored. And ultimately, we, uh, we have in our contracts that we can use that to help retrain uh, our, our, our models. Um, that, uh, it sounds easier than it actually uh, is because uh, ideally when you're creating more complicated AI models, you, you need consensus. So um, that means you have two or three readers that are, are reading the same case. And if you don't have that consensus, it's hard for you to know whether that's truly ground truth or not. So there's some nuances there that in ideal worlds, it's simple, but it's actually not. Um, and then ultimately to know it, that, that data is valuable. So it's independent of whether it's retraining or not. We know whether the product is hitting mark or whether they're taking extra click. So that like all that is really important from an adoption perspective. And I would say we're still um, years away from continuous AI training or, 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 or learning just because um, of all the things I mentioned. Also, if, 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 it, if it is a high-risk device, the FDA needs to be comfortable with that, that, that pipeline. And there's almost no examples of that today. Uh, I think over the next five, 10, 15 years, that may come, especially with lower risk types of things, for sure. I, I don't see an issue with that. The FDA wouldn't either, for example, in figuring out where they want the location of a button to be. If you do it three times, uh, you can use AI to automate where that button is going to be, and that's fine. But if you're trying to detect cancer and you say, this is cancer, 
like good luck. That's going to take many, many years of clinical trials and evidence to show that that's safe and effective. So it's interesting. So the regulatory framework is pushing you to kind of keep the models more static because otherwise you would have to. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say so. I would say maybe the opposite. They're pushing us into a more of a post-market surveillance of you should be constantly monitoring the performance and updating, but not real time, uh, autonomously. Uh, okay. Updating in a, in a monthly, quarterly, or whatever uh, cadence to ensure that the product is keeping up with uh, changes in imaging uh, protocols or in contrast agents being used or types of scanners that are being used that are maybe... Uh, generating new types of images. So th- th- there's a concept, there's this uh, idea of concept drift where uh, things change over time and, and, and FDA encourages you to, to keep up with that. What about brittleness of models? I've read a lot about that, you know, especially when you use a model that's been trained with a certain patient population and you take it somewhere far away, geographically, culturally, whatever the case is. Is that something that you see as you deploy globally or has it not been such a big problem? Yeah, um, for sure it has. And having a diverse uh, data set in your training data and your, your validation data and your test data is, is really, really important. Um, and I would say that it depends on the use case. So for example, if your AI algorithm is figuring out whether there's a heart in an X-ray, like that's a pretty simple task and you don't need a lot of diverse data to, to say, yeah, this X-ray has a heart or not. Versus for more complica- uh, complex uh, pathology where it, it could be impacted uh, based on gender, age, um, uh, race or ethnicity or any, anything like that, um, for sure, that, that has been an issue when well-published. But it, it all goes back on what, what are you trying to do? What, what is the AI trying to do? Luckily, in our case, um, there, there isn't a lot of sensitivity to that in, in cardiac imaging, for example, but uh, in other areas, for sure, there is. So, John, you talked about being cloud native and certainly doing everything up in the cloud, compute, storage. Clearly, that has to be a big part of your cost structure and something that you're trying to optimize for. Is is there anything you've uh, done about that? Or is there anything you're looking at to, to help? You know, clearly I would imagine that reducing that would have a large impact in your overall operations. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. And we, we, we strive to kind of keep very high margins because, uh, and so we're constantly monitoring, um, you know, what, what our cloud compute or cloud costs are. And, um, and that's that's almost honestly 90% of our like cost of goods sold. Um, so when you think about cloud costs, uh, it's split between um, compute and storage. Uh, now there's everything else that that we, that we use. We use over 50 different services from from AWS, but those are just pale in comparison to those two big buckets. Like for example, like network traffic or um, using you know uh, SQS or messaging or any of like the other stuff, it just, it's a fraction of cents on the dollar. So in terms of um, storage, there's not much we can do there. And, and we talked a little bit about that where, we, yes, we, we use, um, there's functionality where you can, it's uh, like a lower priority storage, or I don't know what, what, what they call it, but it automatically kind of makes it a little bit less available. And then yes, there's, there's Glacier, um, which makes it even, um, even cheaper. So yes, we, we, we do all, all that stuff, but there's not a lot of like creativity that you can do in that space. 
On the processing or compute side, absolutely. And that's where we have to be really creative where if we have 40 inference models or and growing by the end of the year or the next couple of years, we'll have hundreds of models that need to be fully loaded in memory and ready to go to, to have the second turnaround times. So you can have servers that are just like preloaded with these models uh, because you, like it's just too expensive. So we have to be have to be really creative to bootstrap and to create like AMIs that are that spin up fast just to try to not have extra capacity just waiting there for for that next um, for for that for that study that that comes in. So optimization uh, is really important there. Um, also, what's been nice is you know in the beginning we used to pay for um, if we used to load up an instance for one minute, we would pay for the entire hour. And I don't know when they changed that four or five years ago, but that's been a huge differentiator where we pay by the minute now, or maybe it's by the second in some cases, where that's really nice, where we can spin up and down and, and conserve costs. But also it's it's the parallel processing, is like being able to use maybe two large instances to serve up you know five different types of customers. Um, like that's been really powerful in terms of fairly sharing that load across many different GPUs and CPUs and also uh, being flexible. So kind of um, scaling horizontally and vertically based on what we need scaling vertically, because, you know, we may need a larger GPU for this digital pathology image that takes 10 gigabytes of, uh, of RAM versus we need just a small T1 instance to process this one chest X-ray, you know, so like that, having that flexibility is really great. And of course, kind of the auto scaling where we, we can spin up and down uh, very fast by region, by time zone, I think has been really, really great to conserve costs. Um, but we, yeah, we've optimized the heck out of that. Yeah, I can imagine. Thank you for that. That's <laughs> that's enlightening. One one more question. It's really something I've uh, wondered for a while. I've seen you guys at the RSNA and a bunch of shows. So your logo. Is it, I always think of a hysteresis loop, but is, is it that, or is it like a, a cardiac, uh, you know, muscle cell? Like what's the story behind that? Sure. It's it kind of like a, a swan and kind of like a, an S shaped. And uh, that originally comes from kind of a wave or kind of the flow of, of water. And that's kind of comes from our um, kind of when we were created, we started with 4D flow or 4D flow is a way to measure blood flow, non-invasively using MRI. So that's how you get kind of this flow icon. And then, uh, and then we kind of uh, took it from there. Kind of looks like strips of daikon radish to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Indeed. That's right. Uh, All right. Uh, So you mentioned earlier, and just to kind of ask one more thing before we go, you were talking about, um, you know, spinning up different parallel processes and that sort of thing. Are are you doing, what, what sort of automation is going on in the background there? Is it, like a Kubernetes stack or you know, what is going on there? Sure. Um, so we kind of have a, a, a microservice architecture um, that's uh, where we have like certain components that are deployed in a kind of a, um, a, a Kubernetes stack or, uh, or we have a, like a collection of Docker containers. Uh, for example, and we do that a lot on the AI side or ML side. Um, and then we just, uh, we actually leverage a lot of AWS services for kind of auto scaling, um, kind of our, our, our kind of web servers. And then we kind of had a kind of a middle tier that, that manages a lot of the processing. And then we kind of have our backend that is kind of our compute where we have CPUs and GPUs that do a lot of the rendering and a lot of the quantification um, and kind of all these kind of communicate what, um, like seamlessly. So for example, when you're rotating using our viewer, 
um, you're, you're getting 30, 60 frames per second. So what's actually happening is with every rotation, um, that mouse coordinate is being sent up to our, the edge uh, or up to the, the, the load balancer, to, to the web server, to the middle tier, to the back end, which renders that, that JPEG. And that JPEG gets funneled through the exact same mechanism back into your browser in five milliseconds. And so that's how you're able to get 30, 60 frames per second. So there's a lot going on with server-side rendering. We also do client-side rendering, and we do a lot of fancy things to make it feel native. All right, cool. A lot going on in the background there. And uh, I'm guessing that, you know, it's very complex, but you do that so that it's not complex for your, your end users. Yeah, exactly. All right, John Esteban, thanks so much for joining us today and talking to us about Arteris. Uh, so, John, uh, where would we find more information about Arteris? Sure. So you can go to artist.com, A-R-T-E-R-Y-S.com, or you can send me an email at john at artist.com. All right. And Esteban, uh, where could we contact you? For me, it's esteban.rubens, R-U-B-E-N-S, at netapp.com, or go to netapp.ai, netapp.io, or netapp.com slash healthcare. There's a lot of really good information in all of those places. All right, excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netapp.com or send us a tweet at netapp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or via techontappodcast.com. If you'd like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Esteban Rubens and John Xerio Chilius for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. Is it just me that's getting off on this? Oh, yeah.